Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, we got the Bucks at the Eagles tonight, Thursday night football, the third game in 11 days. Bucks fans, are you worn out just yet? I mean, you must be a little exhausted from... All this playing and mostly winning, I guess. The Bucks have a chance to go to 5-1 and one on the young season. Certainly a better start than last year's 7-5 and five mark. So um, can they keep it going? And, you know, first of all, Philadelphia is a tough place to play, and it really doesn't seem to matter who the football team is. This is a good, not great Philadelphia Eagles football team. Good might be a relative term. Um you know, I think they have the ability to give you trouble with Jalen Hurts simply because of his ability to, you know, to throw um, and run, make plays with his feet. Some decent skills, play, skilled players. Miles Sanders does a lot for them, particularly in the passing game, even though he's listed, you know, as, as a running back. Um, their tight end looks like he's going to be out because of COVID. Uh, so that's certainly uh, going to help the Bucks a little bit. But really, defensively is where I would sort of look at this matchup, um, Steve, is that they've got guys at every level, veteran players, um, that can actually play pretty well. I mean, if, whether you're talking about Josh Sweat, uh, Fletcher Cox in the middle of the defense, so they got guys that can get after you. Ryan Kerrigan, the old former Washington Redskins um, defensive end, is on this team. Um, I did say Redskins, Washington football team uh, defensive end. Uh, you know, at at uh, at the corner position, you have guys like Darius Slay, um, you know, Stephen Nelson, uh, you know, guy, guys that have sort of played before that uh, do some good things. And then Jake Elliott is their place kicker. He used to actually was with the Bucks in their practice squad for a little while um, back in the day. And the Eagles are coming off, you know, a win over Carolina. I mean, that was a game that you know Carolina jumped out to a three and one start. Their only loss being Dallas, and everybody thought, well. You know, maybe with Sam Darnold and and the Panthers are for real. And then, you know, the Eagles wound up winning that football game. So it's not an easy thing to do to, you know, play a game on a Sunday, even though it was at home. It was at 1 o'clock, so you got a couple extra hours rest. But then be that team that, that not only has to play Thursday night but has to travel. You know, um, they had to leave on Wednesday to get up to Philadelphia, and then you're kind of waiting around all day. Um, so no one's really practiced. Their bodies are still just now. This would be their first day, second day of practice for the new week. Instead, they're playing another game, third one in, in 11 days. So, I mean, you know, we saw what they did last year in different circumstance, but their fifth game of the year last year was at Chicago on a Thursday night, probably their worst game of the season. Um, had a lot of guys nicked up, but just, you know, generally didn't focus well. Tons of false start penalties, tons of penalties in general. Wound up losing that game to the Bears, twenty to nineteen. I don't think you can just chalk this up as a win, um, but it's certainly a team that that the I think if the Bucks come and and, and play their game, um, they should score a lot more points. I think than Philadelphia is capable of. If that makes sense, it does. I mean, last week we talked about how Miami was probably just the team that 
the Bucks needed. You know, it was what the doctor ordered after playing the Rams and then the the Patriots both on the road. But anytime you go on the road on Thursday night football, it, it can be an adventure. And and as you said, you don't really practice. How much healing has your body's done? Tell me how Tom Brady's finger is. Um, you know, That's a great that point. can be a it huge really part of this game. Uh, you know, health and, and, and that, all the nicked up injuries and things like that. Now, as we've talked to, the good part is, is that this is your third game in 11 days, and then you're going to have about 10 days off before your next game. For uh, sure. Players love that many buy. Uh, mm-hmm. The other part is, is look, you're four and one going into this game. If you lose this game, you're still four and two. You're in good shape as far as the season goes, and that happens. And you're done with Thursday night games for the the, week, the year. So now every year. game is on a you know Sunday or Monday, you know mm-hmm. more of a traditional week thing. So right. you know, I, I, look, should the Bucks beat the Eagles? Yes, but Thursday night on the road can be tricky at times, and, and a lot of it depends on on the health of your team more than anything. Yeah, and, and the thing about Brady's thumb, I don't think that's you know, necessarily you know we we talked to him during the week, and and he has not really downplayed it. I mean, you know, what he says is, look, other than your right shoulder uh, or elbow, um, you know, you need your hand. You need your, you need all, you know, this is, this is not an insignificant injury. It's one that he played with. But I think if you look at Sunday's game, he was hurt with about four minutes to go in the second quarter. His numbers after the injury and before are almost some almost identical. They're very similar numbers in terms of like how well he was able to throw the ball, if not threw it better in the second half. But having said that, you got the adrenaline of the football game. Um, you're you're already into the fire of it. You know you played a half, uh, so you're kind of warmed up, and you know things like contact injuries, bruises. Uh, whatever he's dealing with there, and the thumb is something that probably felt a lot worse. 24 48 hours later now he thought that by the time they played tonight on thursday night football that it would have you know the the soreness a lot of this that soreness would have gone out of there we'll see you know um it's not to say he won't get hit on it again you know this is the thing when you go into games injured um it's funny how those injuries end up cropping up again you know you you get more contact on them for one reason or another and you know, I, I think he knows that he's played with worse. I mean, this guy is somebody that never misses games. He's had his he's had his hand laced open before and still managed to throw. Um, you know, with with that problem, but but it is something to watch, and it's it's something especially if uh, if you see him getting pressure and getting hit. Um, you know, guys in his face. Uh, you you wonder, you know, just just how protective of it he might be. He certainly was able to stand in there and deliver some some unbelievable balls the other day, um, in the face of all kinds of pressure and 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 sh- shots and things that he took um, as he delivered the football. So he'll have to do that again. I tend to think, even though the weather's going to be better, I tend to think this is going to look a little more like the New England game than it did than than it looks like the Miami game. I don't expect them to go out there and for him to throw for four eleven and five touchdowns. Now, could he do it? Yeah, he's capable of that. Um, but I, but I suspect he'll, it, it'll be, um, maybe a little less, uh, wide open. Um, and I, and you just don't know, and you don't know how the defense is going to play mm-hmm. because the one thing they haven't had to deal with teams aren't trying to run the ball on them, but they've not had a mobile quarterback in these next couple weeks. You know, you're talking about 
two guys that can absolutely beat you with their feet as well as their arm, and they can extend plays. And when you have uh, a suspect secondary like the Bucks do, and you got older guys like Richard Sherman, if Jalen Hurts takes off and in in the process of running, they they get separation with those DBs. They don't they don't plaster those guys. Now all of a sudden he can you know either pull the ball down or he can throw it over their heads and. That's, you know, whether it's this week or next week with Justin Fields, that's something that this team hasn't had to deal with as a defense. Um, we know they shut down the run. We know um, a lot of teams try to hit them on the perimeter, try to, you know, get the ball out quickly, all those things. And I think their pass rush is getting better. But this is a different animal. I mean, Hertz, Hertz showed the ability to make plays um, and keeps his eyes down the field. And he's a winner. You know, <clears throat> this, is a, this is a guy that has won at every single level. They've got a good young head coach in Nick Sirianni. I, I think the team plays hard for them. They're a little bit in transition because they still have some older players as well. Uh, and the NFC, you know, the NFC East, they're they're not going to win that division because Dallas is really, really good. And and Dallas took these guys apart. So I, I guess if you're looking at common opponents, you know, I think Dallas won by three touchdowns or close to that, put up 40 against them, um, albeit at home. So, you know, maybe, maybe there's some, some – uh, silver lining there but i i've never gone to philadelphia with any football team that the bucks have had and felt comfortable that they were going to win there's something about their history there man uh and i know their greatest victory of all time in the nfc championship game came at the vet and then mm-hmm. next year they opened the link and won there but there's something about philadelphia that's a it's a difficult fan base you know what i mean mm-hmm. like you've you've done games up in philly like those those people are different, man. They are. And and, and look, the, the Bucks have two road games this year. They mm-hmm. lost at the Rams, and they struggled in New England. Now, Good point. You know, New England, you can talk about the weather and the emotion, and there was a lot of things to go into it, of course. Absolutely. Right. Um, but they have played much better at home than they have on right. the road this year. That's true. Again, this is a road game on a Thursday night, mm-hmm. and, and that's what, you know, that's what should scare you as a, as a, a Bucks fan is that, you know they haven't they haven't shown that they're they they play well on the road yet and then this year's different than last and and the fans have made things very different and we know those Philly fans as you mentioned are different and mm-hmm. and and you know they do make it tough on opponents there so yeah um, it, yeah and it, you know the false starts like this team has had trouble mm-hmm. um, executing they've had penalties on the road and because of the noise they played an entire season last year and won a Super Bowl predominantly in stadiums that were empty and the communication is is key so it doesn't take much they struggled with it in new england they've they struggle with it in in los angeles for sure and there's a good likelihood that they may struggle with it this week in philadelphia and you know those are all part of you know we talk about year every year is different and and you know defending championships and sort of not expecting the same thing to happen two years in a row well this none of this happened a year ago this this group here has not had to communicate under adverse uh, situations like they're going to experience again um, tonight at Philadelphia. So I think that's all, you know, it's all in there. It's all wrapped up in there somewhere. Plus, don't forget now, defensively, they're not going to have Levante David. And I have seen this football team without Levante David, and it is not as good. Quite clearly, it is not as good. For as much as you love, and everybody loves Devin White, and he's a heck of a young player, Devin White does a lot of freelancing, you know. Devin White just kind of plays by instincts at times. And you know why he can do that? Because Levante David is the big eraser for him. Levante David can go behind him and, you know, if he doesn't get to the ball carrier first, he can cover his side, his gap. 
He does a lot of that. And, you know, Kevin Minter is an experienced player. He's he's had this role before. He stepped in before. He had to do it in the second half on Sunday. I think he'll hold up. He is not Levante David. And the, there's a residual effect on the other inside linebacker when Levante is not there, when it's just when it's just Devin White. So, um, you know, we know that they're nicked up in the secondary. Uh, you know, I think Jamel Dean played probably his best game um, coming off an injury, but he's still – Got a little bit of an aggravated knee situation. Uh, Sherman did not play very well, uh, but for what they're asking him to do, you know, they've held teams to 17 points each of the last two weeks. If you said to me they're going to hold Philly to 17, that's a win, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's really – that's the goal. You know, there, there won't be style points in this one, I don't think. Now watch, he'll go out and throw six touchdowns. But um, I, I do think that, you know, you, you've got to find a way to get to 5-1. and one. And we were just talking before the f- podcast – how many times have the Bucks been five and one? Last year they Not, were four and two because they started six and two, if you remember. Right, and they had right, lost right. three out of four. That's correct. And they went to the bye seven and five, but right, and then one eight in a row. But it's not it's not been very many. I know the teams that I've covered very 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 few have ever gotten, if any, to five and zero. Oh. I think there was one year under Tony Dungy they were four and zero. Oh. Um, I don't know if they made it to five and zero. Oh. I think they went to Green Bay and lost. Um, and quite a few teams that never made it to five wins total. <laughs> That's right. Exactly right. Back in the day, uh, we used to have a running joke because uh, my ex-friend Tom Jones – no, it's not true. He was never my friend. Um, my uh, my friend Tom Jones would always pick the Bucks 5-11-1, and one, and I used to laugh. I'd say, like, you know we're never going to get that tie, right? Um, but – but the five wins usually held up. <laughs> I hate to say it, man. The Bucks would get so mad and it would be like, "Really, five eleven again?" You know, it's like, well, five eleven one, and then most of the times, you know, um, getting five wins around here was rare. You know, it, it, it sometimes and John Gruden, we talked about this uh, twice, failed to get more than five. So, um, you know, it, it's definitely it's definitely something to step back and go, "Hey." Um, you know, don't take this for granted, folks, because five and one a five and one start, you know, gives you a good solid game and a half lead um over everybody in the NFC South with all the Sunday games still to play in the Monday night game. Uh and then, you know, you come home, you'll have the ten days off, you get the Chicago Bears at your place, which still has a young quarterback, albeit very talented, a pretty good defense. That that Bears team is is a little better than this Philadelphia team, in my opinion. But you have them here, and that should be your advantage. Uh, and then you go to what is going to be the showdown for the NFC South. I mean, you go to New Orleans on Halloween night, you know, at 4 o'clock or 4.30, and it's going to be a national game. Jameis is going to be all up in it, as you know. And, and that game is going to have a lot of deep, deep uh, implications for the, for the division and for all that the Bucs uh, have done. They have not won the NFC South in five years. I mean, yes, they have a Super Bowl, which is the ultimate goal. Um, but they have not taken that division, and you're going to have to take it from New Orleans. So, you know, this is this would be huge for them to get get the extra time off, get some guys healthy, um, you know, uh, a healthy Grun- Rob Gronkowski, for example, uh, that, that's, you know, further down the road as far as his, his recovery goes, um, a healthier Antoine Winfield Jr., um, you know, maybe in a few weeks you get Sean Murphy bunting back. You know, uh, that's the hope of this of this organization is that uh, no one has actually been knocked out, knock on wood, for the season just yet. 
So a lot of these guys that are hurt have a chance to come back and make your football team better. So, you know, as you get down the road here and you play better football because you're together and, and that's what good teams do, you know, I think I think we saw that just, and again, the elements and the emotion were part of the New England game, but you saw the improvement from New England to the Miami Dolphins and the execution, especially in the red zone, different areas where they struggled. That's going to happen the more you play. Um Another big night potentially for Antonio Brown, you know, who has a chance to build on what was his one of his best games just this past uh, Sunday against the Dolphins. Um, you know, those receivers, uh, knock on wood, all are healthy right now. Tyler Johnson's starting to work into things. Leonard Fournette gives him an identity running the football. We talked to Byron Lefwich and basically he said, you know, w- what's been the difference? He goes, well, I'm calling the runs. I mean, and that's. Sometimes that's just it, right? Sometimes you have to give that, that running game a chance, and I think they recognize that they have to be balanced. You want to be productive, and, and obviously their playmakers are their outside receivers and tight ends, and, and they want to get the ball to them, but um, you do have to recognize it's a 44-year-old quarterback in a 17-week season just to get to the postseason. I mean, think about this. They're going to play – this will be their um, sixth game, okay? Sixth game. There's still 11 games after this game, man. Mm-hmm. 11. Not not 10, but 11 games of the regular season. It's a this is wow. This is a yep. long long year. And I, I did a quick so. perusal. Uh it looks like this would be the fifth time they would start 5 and 1 in fifth franchise time history out of 40 yeah. I don't know, 40 47 years, 45 years, something like that. 1979 they won their first 5. Yeah, that's right. 1997, they started 5-1. and one. That was Tony Dungy's year. Yeah, that went to the playoffs. Yep, 2002 and 2005. Won a Super Bowl and uh, won a division in 2005. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, think about that. that so, folks, um, enjoy this. Uh, we don't know how fleeting Champa Bay may be, although the last couple of days haven't instilled much confidence in me. <laughs> Maybe we can have nice things. Rays, lightning. Ugh, yeah. We don't even talk about the lightning right now just because I, I'm, I went to that game and it was really cool, the banner, the ceremony, and then they decided not to play hockey. Well, as John so. Cooper said, they decided to watch a banner raising and then watch another team <laughs> win a That's hockey right. game. That's right. <laughs> it was one of those nights. I did enjoy the mini banner. Somebody I was with just said, I'm just going to treat it like a preseason game. You know, well, I think that's what the gonna, lightning did. I think the lightning did that as well, yeah. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So, uh, okay, so let's get into quickly before uh, before we go. We got a couple of your mailback questions, too, that we'll, we'll answer um, if we have time. And, of course, we have time. Um, so we didn't discuss this. I know you mentioned it on the podcast yesterday, but uh, the, the Buccaneers around 6 p.m., I guess it was on uh, Wednesday, decided to make a, a statement um, and also announced that they were removing John Gruden, uh, his name, from – the team's ring of honor. 
And I let me say a couple things. One, I'm not surprised. I am a little surprised at the swiftness of how that decision was made because earlier in the day, you know, I was asking if there would be a reaction to some of the emails that had come out that led to John's resignation, specifically the ones where he mentions his former owners to Bruce Allen and and um and in, in, in a vile way. So clearly clearly the owners were stung by that. Um uh, as well as as well as just the language in general, right? The the you know, whether it's misogynist, racist, uh, homophobic, you, you name it. It was all sort of in that pile of, of, of emails that were released. But um, then then I saw some of the reaction, uh, you know, on Twitter, which is a dangerous place to go for reaction sometimes, Buck's Twitter in particular. And some of the folks raised the question, and it's, it's worth examining, I suppose, is that, you know, well, wait a minute, so... So Gruden's out of the ring of honor, but you got guys like, you know, Warren Sapp still in there. And, you know, then you go ahead and you sign an Antonio Brown and he's still playing. And what about Jameis Winston, who you had for. And you know what? Those are all very valid, valid points to bring up, in my opinion. Completely valid. I I, I recognize, you know, um, that you know you it's certainly your right to do that and question all those decisions um and you know some some of the off field issues that those guys were and or in some instances may still be embroiled in having said all that um doesn't change what john did you know that doesn't change that your organization uh, does not stand for any of the things that he was espousing in these in these text messages or emails um, albeit them, they were 10 years old and he was no longer an employee of yours and was on Monday Night Football and all of that. Uh, but I've seen this organization go, you know, hard towards, uh, you know, whether it's promoting fairness in their hiring, um, you know, of minorities. I mean, we've seen Bruce Arians' composition of his staff, of his coordinators, uh, inclusive in terms of women and their rights uh, and their futures in the NFL and in football. They're big promoters of that, social social uh, justice. I mean, they've done some things and, and have, have stood for some things that are, you know, certainly opposite of what the kind of language that, that John was using. Um, and, and, you know, Gruden was a head coach. I mean, Gruden. Gruden is a was a leader of men, and, and as they said in the statement, they're not they're not minimizing his accomplishments on the field. He brought them a Super Bowl. You know, that's history. They um, they embraced what the job that he did. But this is the Ring of Honor, and we can debate what that term means to everybody. Are we celebrating their football accomplishments? Mostly, I'd say yes. Um, but does it is it exclusive to that? I don't know. You know, it's it's fair to ask about Warren Sapp, but when Warren Sapp played here, um, you know, we sort of knew what kind of a character he was. He's gotten into trouble since, for sure. Um, but again, he's a player. Um, wasn't wasn't the face of your franchise, uh, although he was for a while on defense. But I mean, in terms of the way a head coach, I mean, in the NFL, coach court it's a coach quarterback league, and the and the head coach is really when he's in charge, he's the face of your franchise. More so even than than the franchise quarterback. So 
I don't know. I, I think a lot of people, there's a lot of, yeah, what about, what about isms? You know what I mean? And I, I don't think that's the way decisions are, are made. You know, there's also a personal aspect to this and let's not ignore it. You know, that in one of these emails, I mean, Gruden gets extremely personal towards the, towards the actual family. One of the family members, one of the co-owners, Brian Glazer. I don't think they can ignore that, you know, um, it's their it's their franchise, it's their ring of honor, you know. They they decide who goes in it. There's no, you know, it's not by popular vote. Um, there's no process. They don't even have to have one. So, um, like I said, I'm not surprised that John, you know, he was taken out of it. Um, I'm a little surprised that it it happened that quickly. I, I know that there was a lot of discussion you know, the other day on Wednesday about just what, if any, sort of statement they would have. But listen, I mean, outside of the Raiders, who he was fired by or resigned from, and he had two stints coaching there, John Gruden is, you know, linked in history, and this is his home. Um, you know, he, he grew up here. His family's still here. He has a home in Avila. He will likely come back and live here, uh, you know, Coach to Carrollwood Day, kid went to, I mean, there are deep, deep Tampa roots, you know, so this is as much a Tampa story as it is anything in Las Vegas. And, you know, I think, I think the Bucks of all the organizations um, outside of the, you know, the other thing is Mark Davis has punted the whole situation. I mean, basically he said on Thursday, um, I don't got anything, I don't have anything else to say about it call the league they've got all the answers he sounds a little embittered and and i get that too like i want to know how an investigation for the washington football team and its owner daniel daniel snyder in the in the terrible culture that was created by that organization which included bruce allen as president how all that investigative material wound up dumping one guy and it's a coach of the las vegas raiders like are, are we never going to see what's in those those emails that the NFL has no plans and, and claims they didn't leak these, but has no plans to ever reveal the contents of their investigation? Why? You know, why? It, it just so I don't think we're done with the issue. Um, but anyway, that that's sort of my two cents with with John. And do we it's, know, it's, do the Bucks have any plans to remove the statue in their lobby? I mean, I haven't heard that specifically. Here's their stance on that. Um, Nunya is their stance. You know, when you go to that stadium, whether it's to watch USF, remember that's operated by the TSA. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's visible from Dale Mabry. You can see who's in that Ring of Honor. That's that's mm-hmm. a that's a sure. permanent permanent mark up there, uh, and one that's that's held in reverence. Um, the statue that, that you refer to is actually a collection of statues. He's one of them celebrating the Super Bowl 37 team. You got guys like Mike Allstott and John Lynch and Brad Johnson and Simeon Rice. Um, Rondé Barber is in there. And then John's in sort of in the middle of that. It's in the atrium of the facility, which right now, and for the past two years, nobody has access to. Mm-hmm. Um, the building has been limited to just employees um, even then it's by invitation only. You're not just going to walk in there. My guess is, and it, it's not as, since it's not as public, they, mm-hmm. they probably will never announce it. But would I be surprised if 
a year from now, six months from now, I walked in there and John Gruden was still part of that display? Yes, I would. I'd be extremely surprised. Uh, I think that's, that's, you know, headed to a dumpster someplace soon. Um, I can't imagine that the Glazers, again, I think it's deeply personal. Um, they built that facility. Um, and I know the TSA has a lot of, you know, land, right, different things were involved. But at the end of the day, that's their workplace. And I don't think they're looking to expunge history. Um, I don't think there'll be no, you know, uh, mentions or documentation of John Gruden. I mean, they have a lot of things from the Super Bowl newspapers, uh, uh, you know, di- different things, videos, different things that are that are part of their displays over there. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to expunge him totally from the building. I don't think we're going to have a statue of him. They they have not told us that, and I frankly don't think they won't will. I think we'll come in there one day, and he, he just won't be part of the display. That that's what I anticipate. But mm-hmm. no one has said anything about it. But I I can't imagine. <laughs> You're going to take the guy out of the ring of honor, and then there in the lobby of your of your training facility will be John Gruden, the first thing you see. Well, you and know, it, it'll be interesting going forward. And to me, and as you said, you were shocked by how quick the decision was made. Mm-hmm. I think that shows you their feelings towards John. Absolutely. From not just maybe more than just the email that was uncovered in the last week or two or whatever. But, oh, and let me tell you, let me mm-hmm. be clear. It, it's mutual. Mm-hmm. John Gruden has zero and I mean less than zero uh, affinity for the Glazer family. And and I don't know, you know, okay, you got fired. And this, this goes back, listen, from the time he got fired. Only a few years ago, if you recall, John was itching, right, to get back in the NFL. And he he actually leveraged the Glazer family, I think, to some degree, and the Bucks, rightly or wrongly, correctly or incorrectly, when – Mark Davis, who had tried to pursue him for years and years, I think there was there was a feeling that, you know, he was either going to come back and coach one of two teams, the Buccaneers or the Raiders. I don't know that he was – in fact, I'm sure of this because I asked him about it. When he took the Raiders' job and he got his $100 million, um, or probably less than that now, but ten year, signed a 10-year $100 million deal um, – I talked to him because right before that was when he was inducted in the Ring of Honor. He was here on a Monday night covering the game. They brought him down at halftime. We, I went over to Hooters. Um, sound like Jack Harris. Sure, I go to Hooters. Went to Hooters and saw him. Holy and guacamole. He, yeah, he was over there, right? He was over there, uh, and, and, he, and he had sort of a reception. That's how I found out about it, right? Not that he wanted to see me, for God's sakes, but I went. And I paid my respects, and I asked him about the box and, the, and 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 I don't know where my coach you know what I mean if I if I go back in it at all so he did all of that and then and then he signs with the Raiders and then we go to Indianapolis for the combine this is his first after the press conference that he had with all these ex Raiders up there behind him uh we go to the combine he gets up on the podium his first really official duty uh as the the, the new Raiders head coach and I asked him I said when did you rule out coaching the Bucks again, and he shot me a look, you know, that famous Chucky scowl, and he goes, they, they fired me, you know what I mean? Like, it was woo. And and I, I've known that John, you know, when John can grind axes better than anybody I've ever met, um, and I know he had no loss, uh, love loss for them, but it was, you know, that runs deep, 
um, the fact that he was fired by that football team. And it wasn't, it wasn't without drama. I mean, they had just signed him and Bruce Allen to a three-year contract. And they coached one year of it, three-year extension. They coached one year of it and were 9-3, and 9-3 and three with the best record in the NFC going to Monday night, going to Carolina, and lost badly. And then wound up losing their last four games and missed the playoffs. And it wasn't until it didn't happen like the next day or the next week or the week after that. No, this was championship weekend. I'm in Pittsburgh when Schefter comes on at that time in the NFL. According to my sources, shocking news out of Tampa, both Bruce Allen and John Gruden removed with their duties. Like, and it was like, whoa, knocked me over. Even his agent. I tell the story. Bob Lamont represents almost everybody that Mike Homer never had in his life as a coach. Um, John called Bob Lamont and said, hey, Bob, I got fired. And and Bob was doing about 20 different contracts at the time. He said, hey, John, just quit screwing around with me. He hung up on him. Hung up on him. Called him back. No, I'm serious, man. And so, you know, it was such a, like, such a, a, a shocking thing. Um, and even though, even though they had an offset in his contract, they went ahead and paid him anyway the next three years for $15 million that they owed him while he was making bank at ESPN. He harbored deep feelings uh, and not good ones towards the Glazer family, obviously, hence the, hence the emails that he, quote, unquote, didn't, didn't want to hurt anybody with. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, the feelings are, are at best mutual, I think, between, between his, his former employers and John, and, and, you know, that's unfortunate. Again, I, I don't know, you know, so much of his family's here, a lot of his friends, I mean, you know, whether in some of them were mentioned in the story, Jim McVeigh or, or Nick Reeder and all these guys, they're all Tampa guys. Does he come back here? They were building a big house in, in Las Vegas. Do they stay out? I don't, you know, I don't know what his future is going to be, but. Um, I have a question. Did Adam Schefter let the Glazers pre-read a story about that? Them firing <laughs> oh, Gruden, no. Or? Don't give me. Nah, I'm not going there now. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to pass judgment on, on, uh, on the greatness of Adam Schefter. Just not going to do it. ESPN does a lot of things that I disagree with, so maybe this is one of them. But I, I can comfortably tell you and, and put my hand on a Bible. I have, I have never and have no intentions of having somebody pre-read a story that involves them in particular, or any story for that matter, that's not an editor or affiliated with our paper before I publish it. That, that seems to cross some sort of line for me, but hey. If uh, you know it was a t- sensitive subject like the lockout and Allen was in the middle, I, I look. Adam Adam has uh, accomplished way more in this business than I ever will. So he has his employer, and I got mine. But boy, if I did that, uh, there'd be some furniture moving. I think at the Tampa Bay Times. I don't. I don't think they would. That would sit well with anybody. That was interesting, though. Again, of all the things that come out of these emails, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's crazy. It's still it, what what blows my mind away. And granted, we don't know who leaked these emails, but the NFL has six hundred fifty thousand documents on the the Washington Football Team. The only thing that's any action's been taken on at this point is firing John Gruden, firing a Las Vegas yeah. football coach. Yeah, and you just wonder, man, who had it in for that guy? You know, because somebody did, mm-hmm. and it's not to excuse the behavior, but but if that's if that's what you got out of that many emails and that's that much investigation and, and still to this day refuse refuse um to ever let any of that um investigative material see the light of day at least at least through the right channels 
They may be leaking it all over. They may be the ones that are leaking it. I have no idea who is, but you know, um, they they have no intentions of it actually touching the the whole purpose of the investigation, which was which was Daniel Snyder, one of their own, and the Washington Football Team. You know, I mean, we know he we know he had no love for Roger Goodell because some of the things he called him as well. But um, I find it hard to believe. No. I'll just leave it at that. I mean, anybody can be responsible at the league office. They can speak to themselves. But um, some somebody not only let the Wall Street Journal in on these, which is a weird place, right? It's not, we're not talking about the Washington Times. But let the Wall Street Journal in, but all, then also the New York Times. You know, so there's multiple multiple newspapers um, throughout both New York. And, I mean, so, you know, it, it was a fairly coordinated uh, leakage, I would say. Let's get to some mailbag questions because we got a couple on Gruden and we got a lot on the Rays and yeah. some Bucks stuff too. But well, since we're talking Gruden, we'll stay on that. Uh, Ken had emailed us and said, um, running out of McKay, who he would argue is the single most influential coach in integrating both college and pro game, pro game and nobody's even that close, for the son of George Allen and ruining the Bucks dynasty was always inexplicable to this Bucks fan. The fact that the two of those two went down together on their stupid emails is somehow karma for what they did to McKay, Lynch, Sapp, and the rest of the Bucks score back in 2003. Do you see that? I don't know that I see that there's some sort of poetic justice necessarily, but I, I do think that um, it was – I don't know that it was as obvious to people outside of the organization as it was to those of us who were covering it or inside. Um, listen, when John – like I said, what John did – Winning a Super Bowl will stand on its own. He absolutely had an imprint on this team. Everybody that played for Tony, who is beloved, uh, will tell you that they probably would not have won a Super Bowl unless John comes here, um, simply because they needed that that energy. They needed that uh, accountability on offense. They needed a plan. They needed a play caller. They needed a lot of things, but they needed to be more balanced football team, and he brought that to them. And he challenged the defense, and so they won it. Um after that, though, you can go back and, and, and watch this. It's like they have the – and I never understood this, too, because we're out in San Diego. Deadlines are bad enough for Super Bowls. But um, after the game, instead of just going to the trophy presentation, there was Bon Jovi playing. It's like, come on, can we get past this concert? And he's playing My Life. And Bon Jovi was one of Gruden's, like, all-time hair bands, right? Like, he loved he loved John Bon Jovi. He had, you know, I love John It's my life. You know, he'd sing it. And so the confetti's falling at the end of that, and they hand uh, Malcolm Glazer the trophy. And among other, I watched it the other day. Among other things, Malcolm calls it the Tampa Bucks, the Tampa Bucks. You know, I was like, "What? You're the Tampa Bay?" Like, never mind. So then, eventually, Gruden gets the trophy, and in the background is Rich McKay, just kind of happy, but. Mm, no one really gave the trophy. Now, Keyshawn said something the other day that Gruden snatched it out of Rich McKay's hands. I didn't see that. I, I went back and looked for it. I didn't see it. Um, but what he did snatch that day was con- total control, total control of that franchise. He was the youngest coach to win a Super Bowl. He was a rock star on a rock star stage with his favorite rock star, Bon Jovi. And then after that, Rich has said, in his mind, like he knew that moment, he, that moment, which should have been the highlight of his career, he knew at that moment that he wasn't long for the Bucks because John 
John had become the most powerful guy in that organization in, in the owners' minds. And so think about, think about how much animosity and how much trouble there must have been just a year later when with about three or four games left in the season, the Glazer family, Rich goes to them and says, I want out. And, you know, your first response would be, well, no, you're under contract. And at the very minimum, you'd say, we only got a couple games left in the season. What do you mean you want out now? Instead, he said, I want out, and I want to go to the Atlanta Falcons. Wait, what? I want to go to the Atlanta Falcons and work for Arthur Blank, you know, the team that's in your division with Michael Vick in an ascending team right down the street here, up the street. So your response would be, well, hell no, right? Like, wait a minute. First you want to leave. Then you just don't want to leave. You want to go to our division rival. Oh, one more, one more thing. You play the Atlanta Falcons next Sunday. So he was going to leave, go to the Atlanta Falcons, and a week later come back to Raymond James as the, as the Falcons GM. And they said yes. They said yes. That's how much that's how much you know animosity there must have been between those two guys. And to the Glazers, I guess credit, and Rich still thanks them because he's still in Atlanta. Um, they felt indebted to him in part because he helped navigate, you know, the the waters of building a new stadium, of keeping the franchise here in Tampa Bay. He knew the political uh, powers and, and got the half-cent sales tack attached to firemen and police, and that's how they built the stadium, and the Bucks were able to stay and made the Glazers a ton of money. And so they, they felt a certain loyalty to Rich. Um, I'm telling you, that, that deal would, wouldn't happen ever in any sport where your GM leaves in the middle of the season, go to a rival team, and it comes back a week or so later. But that's, that's how deep-rooted. So this is a long way of saying the next year, John gets to pick his GM, hand-pick. And, of course, he goes back to the Raiders and hand-picks Bruce Allen. And Bruce was a terrible talent evaluator. Um, he won an Executive of the Year award one time, which was a joke because he navigated the salary cap, which is an accounting principle. He had all these veterans out there with the Raiders, the same team that the Bucks beat, by the way his team in 02 with Rich Gannon and Rice and all these guys. Um, and then when he came here, he was just a rubber stamp. He was a yes man. John, John ran the personnel department. And that's always been John's weakness is that he was never, he was, you know, X's and O's, a grinder, good offensive play caller, all that. Personnel, mm-mm, not a strong suit, not even close. And yet that was the power he had. And, and you know, for the most part, Allen was just a puppet, you know. Allen Allen was a rubber stamp for Gruden in his decisions. That's that's how you draft Dexter Jackson instead of Deshaun Jackson, you know. Um, that's how you pass on Aaron Rodgers for Gaines Adams, or I'm sorry, Cadillac Williams, you know, uh, and then Gaines Adams the next year instead of Adrian Peterson, you know. I mean that those are the crippling decisions that these guys made. And then every year it was, I got to have a new quarterback, man. What about this Jeff Garcia? You know, I need Jeff George in here. Every day it was something else. So I think at some point that building became so toxic that 
the Glazers realize we got to take our franchise back. This isn't. This is no longer about winning, right? This is about likability. Our fans don't like our team. They don't like our team. They don't like our head coach. They don't like the fact that we change players every year. And and and, and this is not a small thing because I'm not going to give the Glazers a hall pass either. They also had three uncapped years coming. You know, it was unprecedented poison pill for the union. And since they didn't ratify an agreement, there was three uncapped years. What that meant, folks, is that they can control for the first time since free agency the bottom line. They could spend one dollar, or or two hundred million dollars on payroll, and they went the cheaper route. And they knew that John, being John and Bruce being Bruce, were going to bang the drum after that nine and seven season, and say, "We got to go to free agency, man. I got to spend. So I need some players." And their whole intent was, "We just purchased Man U. We got two hundred fifty million dollars in debt. We're paying this off." Watch us get young. Watch us cut Derek Brooks and Cato June and Warwick Dunn. And that's how you arrived, you know, in part um, with the Glazers getting rid of Gruden and Allen because that was never going to be, they were never going to sit well with that. But I do think there was also, um, you know, sort of, it was not, a, let's just say it wasn't a good building. That's kind of the phrase we use in the, in the league. It, just, it, was, it was not a good building at that time. All right, Thad had a Bucks question. He says, couldn't it be argued that Tom Brady's pre-snap analysis, quick post-snap assessment, and timely throws reduces the risk of injury to the Buccaneers' offensive line? Maybe throwing more early in season keeps the offensive line fresher throughout the year. I mean, there's no question that uh, a couple things to unpack there. One, show me a scrambling quarterback, and I'll show you a guy who leads the league in sacks. Period. I don't care if it's Michael Vick. I don't care if it's Patrick Mahomes. You show me a mobile court guy that will extend plays like Jameis Winston used to try to do, but just a guy, but a guy that's even more mobile. They will lead the league in sacks. It's harder to block for somebody who's going to flee the pocket. You know, some people think the opposite. They're like, whoa, this guy. I mean, he can, he's got some escapability. You know, he's, he's not just a statue back there. Well, <laughs> Funny thing about those statues, they don't hold on to the ball long, you know? The other thing about knowing having a pocket passer like Brady is you know exactly where he is in that pocket. So you can then protect and push guys around him, okay, because he ain't leaving. He's right there. And and so your job, again, the quarter on average, Brady gets rid of the ball in two point five seconds or less. Well, if your job is to win for 2.5 seconds of every play. That's a hell of a lot easier than four seconds, five seconds, a guy that's running around, hanging on the ball. You don't know whether he's going right, left, coming back your way. I mean, you can't engage with a defensive lineman for more than a few seconds, or they're going to call holding if you're still if you're still engaged. So I think, yes, I think Brady has absolutely helped his offensive line. Um, I think his offensive line has gotten better as a result, because I think the communication is really good. Um, and, you know, I mean, knock on wood, injuries can happen any time, but, uh, you know, he's he's predominantly had the same five or six or seven offensive linemen for the year and a half that he's been here. So nothing helps a, a, an offensive line better than a quarterback who gets the ball out of his hands, gets it to the right receiver, um, doesn't turn it over, um, you know, doesn't put you in third and long, second and long. You know, that's the other thing. Like if you're pass, it's one thing to pass protect 45 times a game, but 
if you're pass protecting 45 times a game because it's third and 12, that's different than, hey, we're going to come out on first down and throw it. Oh, we might throw it on second down too. And you're actually dictating the action. You still need to run the ball, and I think they're getting back to that and doing a little bit better of that. But no question, Tom Brady has made a lot of these guys look and play like like pro bowlers, and some of them, frankly, should be. You know, I always thought that I always thought that Winston and, and other quarterbacks um, hurt the offensive line, uh, and it was hard to block for him at times. And that's not to give these guys a hall pass, but you know. We see we see the difference. You know, you, you're seeing the very very best of quarterback play from the pocket, and I I think all those offensive linemen are grateful for it. All right, we got a lot of questions on the race, so we'll go through a few of these here. Uh, Evan had emailed and said, "You're the you're a baseball guy, so help me understand what I think is the strangest and worst decision of the series. Game four, tie game, bottom of the ninth. Red Sox have one out and runners at the corners, and they pitch to the hitter who was Kiki Hernandez." says, by not walking him, you take away the easy force at home and also have a chance for a double play at every base. And, oh, yeah, the guy at the plate is the best hitter in the postseason. Why not load the bases, keep the forces, and take the bat out of the hottest hand? I didn't see the question asked. Is it some sort of cybermetric? I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's a cybermetric. My guess is, and this is just a guess, that... I would offer up two things. One, one I would say is that when you load the bases in that situation, you put in a lot of pressure on the, on the pitcher to throw strikes. Yeah, you do have some flexibility. You could walk that guy, whether intentional or not, right? and not give and up you the can try to You can try to get him to chase. There, there's, there's ways of pitching to around mm-hmm. a guy without just saying four mm-hmm. fingers and he goes to first. Or you're, just, you know, you're, you're trying to make that perfect pitch, and you're just a little bit outside every time. Yeah, you get four that's balls what I mean. And like, it doesn't end the game. That's what I mean. Yep. It's the unintentional, intentional. Yep. But maybe you get him to chase, and he pops one up because yep. he's reaching across the plate. Yep. You use use his aggressiveness against him. I've seen that. I've also seen you know managers don't like to put in a, in a game winning walk off situation. Don't like to load the bases intentionally because right. now if you're two and zero, oh, guess what? <laughs> one of two things are going to happen: three and zero, oh, or you're going to groove one. Yep. You know. I would say so. the other thing is is. I, and this is me guessing what the Rays are deciding, but Rafael Devers still scared them more than Kiki Hernandez, and Rafael Devers was who was on deck. Yeah, left-hander too. And, and Rafael Devers was what three for four that game had a home run already. Yep. So uh, you know, I, I, it was pick your poison day. I mean, it really was. There was no great options there. I I, I tend to agree. I mean, I I probably would have walked him too. Mm-hmm. But I, I can. Uh, those are the justifications. If I was the Rays, that I would have—that's what I would be thinking. And and I mean, Hernandez was—I mean, he was so hot that it wasn't likely he would, you mm-hmm. know. But but did one guy have more strikeout in him than the other? Like you really needed a strikeout if you couldn't get the double play ball, you know. So yeah, I don't know. It, it's there. There you never want to be in that situation because there's just no winning. There just isn't. You know mm-hmm. the chances of of of. Loading the bases and getting the ground ball for the double play are not good. They're just not. Yep. You know. All right. Craig asked, was not picking up the option on Charlie Morton the biggest move that cost this team a chance to go to the World Series? Also in the eighth, runner on second, no outs, an issue all season. Why did they not change the approach and have someone hit for Brendan Lau then? Cash managed poorly. 
We were just, you know, it's funny because for the podcast, we were just talking about Charlie Charlie Morton, who I didn't realize. I mean, he was like fourteen and six this year. Mm-hmm. Is is absolutely lights out in the postseason. He's that guy that I swear to you, if you, for example, had this last game in Boston, which is a must win for the Rays. If you'd have had a guy like a Charlie Morton, I'm not saying he would have been available anyway, but like those are the those are the types of big game pitchers in the postseason that you need. Charlie Morton has been phenomenal for the Braves, and they're going to owe you know they owe a lot to him to getting as far as they've gotten. I mean, they're in the NLCS, so if they go a World Series, Charlie Morton's going to be one of the biggest damn stories. Or Dan Patrick talking about him today he says, you know, my new favorite pitcher is Charlie Morton. He's been around for like ever, um, and. You know they they made it was a, it was a fine it was a purely to me financial decision. I think Charlie Morton would have been more than fine. He said it. He was a, he would have been more than fine staying here, staying with the Rays, staying close to home. He, but I think he wanted to. I mean, he had the option. It was yeah. team's option for this right. season. But his intent was to be here this year. Right now, okay, let's do the math. So he was around fifteen million. I think they owed him. Yep. Okay. Well. We did this before the podcast. You found close to fifteen million without much, without much, uh, without much trouble. Chris Archer was six and a half. Mm. Michael Waka was three, and I believe I mean, Rich Rich Hill. Now they didn't pay him the full amount because they traded him, but was but two they and were a half. on it. it two I and think, a half. yeah, two and a half, yeah. So mm-hmm. all told, that's twelve million. I mean, right there, you're you're you're, you're three quarters, four quarters, you know, almost all the way there. With with the with players that did absolutely nothing for you. I mean, Rich Hill had some wins in the first half. They knew he wouldn't hold up. They got rid of him. Our Archer. I mean, are we surprised that Chris Archer was hurt? Are we surprised that Chris Archer was a relative zero for six million dollars of Chris Archer? Six million. You know that, that signing I, never made sense to me. I'll go one more. I mean, and it was kind of a binary choice. Like, we, we said that, in, and look, Blake Snell didn't have a good year, right? But it was kind of like either Snell or Kiermaier. And maybe Kiermaier had no market. He was due like $11 million. But if you could do either or, Charlie Morton or Kevin Kiermaier on this team? Well, you're taking Charlie Morton, but you got to find someone to take Kiermaier. I know. That, that was the problem. Yeah. You couldn't. I don't think that they could. But I'm just saying, like, you know, just in terms of, like, sure, you know, um, allocation of resources. Mm-hmm. You sure would like to put it towards Morton um, in the pitching. And that's going to be something they're going to have to address. Like, you know, I was kind of perusing what Eric Neander and, and Cash and those guys were saying afterwards, which was, well, yeah, you know, we, we used a lot of players during the regular season, and it works. But in the postseason, you need that, you know, two or three big horses to make big plays and big pitches. And, yeah, you didn't have them. So let's see if, like, all those guys grew up and got experience and all that. But let's see if they if they do change sort of the composition of their team to get a little bit older and a little bit more reliable. I don't know. I don't know that... Ken asked the question, and it kind of dovetails into this. Are the Rays the Tony Dungy Bucks? Refusing to change the approach for the playoffs and getting whacked. How about new signs and pulling rookies who are tipping pitches more quickly? It's the playoffs, guys. But stop batting the 9-for-96 guy in the three-hole or leadoff. Take some pressure off him. Let Wander see some pitches. Yeah, we saw we talked about this too, and and I kind of tend to agree with you. Like, I don't think you can, I don't think you could manage. In fact, I know you can't. You can't manage the postseason the way you did during the regular season, especially the way the Rays do it in the regular season. I mean, the Rays, you know, analytics are great and they play out over 162 games, but when you but when when you step up in class and you step up in sort of do or die, three out of five, four out of seven type series against. 
the elite teams. I mean, look who's left, right? I mean, these teams are stacked. Um, and a bunch of them added players, right? Boston added Schwarber. And, I mean, you know, so they're going to get better even before you get to them in the postseason. But, man, when you get there, um, you have to read the tea leaves a little bit. Like, you you have to say, look, I, I've seen this look before in Brandon Lau's eyes. That's that's his postseason I'm I'm choking look. Let's take the pressure off. Let's not put him third in the lineup. Let's drop him if we're going to play him at all. Um, and you know this, the same is probably true about some of the young pitchers. They just they just weren't ready. Now there's no, they didn't have many options at that point because they'd gotten rid of everybody that had any experience, and and the ones they had weren't very good anyway, like Michael Walker and those guys. But at the end of the day, like no, you can't you can't manage the same way. And if if you're built to, to to win a division or get to the postseason doing it this way because you're 65 deep in the minors, God bless you. You're going to get here every year, and you're going to lose every year. Um, I think they do have to change. And I don't know if it's the Tony Dungy Bucks. I mean, the Tony Dungy Bucks simply, you know, yes, Tony Tony believed that if he had to, he was going to beat the greatest show on turf 6-5. to five. And you know what? He came four minutes and 44 seconds away from doing it. Um and and let's not kid ourselves like that defense won the Super Bowl the year they won they weren't a great offense but they did more and they did enough but I don't change a philosophy yeah I mean I I do I do think that you, you can't approach the postseason like you do and, and to that extent here's the other thing that they did that was weird so all year long they had a different lineup every night you get in the postseason it's the same lineup every night pretty much all year long, if you got late in the innings, you'd replace guys like Yandy Diaz at third and put in Joey Wendell. Now all of a sudden, Yandy Diaz is dirting one over to G-Man Choi in the ninth inning or the tenth inning, whatever it was. So, like, they didn't even manage the way they managed during the regular season at times. They're kind of all over the map, you know? It's like, be consistent at least. You like, use your whole bench. Like, you use your whole bench. You know, Austin Meadows drove in 100 runs, and he barely got up. Nine at-bats in the series? That can't happen. Like, your best players have to be your best players. You know, you got you to gotta put them out there. And Austin Meadows was one of their best hitters. He's number one RBI man all year long. What, what didn't you do? You didn't score runs in certain situations. You didn't get the big hit. Well, who got bigger hits than Austin Meadows all year with two outs? So, yeah, I, I think there's plenty of room for scrutiny on this one. And, you know... Kevin Cash and the end, they they all they got to look at it. They got to and they said as much. They'll take a look at it, but I I do think that you know. And the other thing, like I I still I'm, I haven't heard the answer to this. Like you know, why are you taking your ace, your starter, the guy that that gave you five shutout and had been pitching as a starter all year, and Shane McClanahan, if you're gonna pitch him, why is he coming into a game? You know, as opposed to just starting him and letting letting Colin McHugh be the guy that starts or that uh, comes in, because that's what that's what his role had been mostly. I know he had been an opener and all that, but like I I don't think that's a position you want to put McClanahan in, and certainly don't want to leave him out there for five runs. So there's plenty of of uh, second guessing and first guessing and whatever you want to call it, but I don't I do think they have to look at the organization and decide. Are we that team that's going to make the playoffs every year and never advance past the ALDS or never never go back to a World Series? Or if we go, we can't win? What do we have to do to win? 
And I think we just, you know, mentioning Charlie Morton was a good start. But again, you get back in the economics of things. Um, and it wasn't the economics. It's just, you know, choosing player A over player B, C, and D, you know. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I think those are all good questions, though. And I think the Rays have to take this offseason and look at those. A couple more. Luis asked, is this Rays lost in the playoffs, their 2019 Lightning playoffs moment? Obviously wasn't a sweep, but going from the best to the first knocked out has them licking their wounds and learning to face adversity this season, prepare for the postseason. They obviously need it to could, work for the win and not expect it like the season. It, uh, I, you know what? It could be. It could be, although I, I would submit that the Lightning are far more talented and were a far more favorite than even though even uh, though the Rays didn't have an underdog feel to them coming into this postseason because they did win 100 games and they had the best record in the American League, so they weren't, they weren't underdogs this time. Um, but that was... That was a pretty talented bunch of players that lost to Columbus in four. Well, they were setting NHL records for wins and points. And, yeah. I mean, this wasn't yeah. just the best team that year. The this best was one of the ever. best teams ever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They tied the NHL record for points. And so it, it, it's not quite on par. But in as much as could it be, could we look back at this and go, you know what, that's when they turn around. Here, here's where there are some parallels. Nothing the Rays do in the regular season matters now. Do you believe that? You you realize that that they put themselves in such a position that they won the AL East twice. They had the best record in baseball in the American League, and now when they go back next year and start in April, everyone's going to be like, hmm, "Okay, now well, you're going to win the league. Yeah, they might win the AL East. Okay, none of it's going to matter till the postseason." I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing for them. No, that's know? where we were with the Lightning two years ago. It's exactly where we were. Tom mm-hmm. Jones said it on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care what happens. I don't care. Wake me up. Wake me up in October. That's that's what next season is now for all those guys. Okay, yeah, but. Okay? And if you keep if you have your eye on that all year long and you got to you got to grind to get back there and you you know, and and that drives you to get back to the spot you were um in the ALDS and go further. Like I thought that was what was driving them this year. They made it to the World Series, they made it to game 6. We just got to go two steps further. Well, you didn't even get back this time. You know, you flamed out. So if that drives them, sure. Um, I thought it was supposed to drive them a year ago. But it could. we could look back at it as their Columbus, you know, the Columbus Blue Jackets moment. We could. Mm-hmm. I, the time will tell. But it does, it does says to me, hey, I don't, you know, I don't care what you guys do in the regular season. None of that matters to me. All right, Casey tweeted, said, we know that the Rays will raise an AL East banner next year. Will they raise a 100 wins banner as well? well such a thing as that? I, don't, I mean, they'll, ra- they'll raise the American League. I mean, it's your uh, house. You can create any banner you want. but Well, yeah, I suppose. I don't think I don't, they will. I don't think so, no. Well, I mean, no one. Especially after the, the way the playoffs ended, I don't think they will. Yeah, right. Remind everybody how terrific you were and to, only to be, you know, beyond – mediocre in the postseason i i tend to think not but there is another ale spanner which is not an insignificant thing in this division and i mean you know the lightning do have a president's trophy banner up from the 2000 do they 1920 season interesting 189 whatever season it was uh, but the president's trophy is an actual trophy they award or you know an award that the nhl gives out for the most points to the most yeah. points that season um yeah. so there's you know it's actually something that's done in hockey yeah that banner thing's pretty neat until you realize you got to go play hockey. 
<laughs> I'm telling you, man, that was the most disappointing. My kids, so we left. It was 3 nothing. They scored their third goal, and there's about seven minutes to go, eight minutes to go, something like that. Maybe maybe less than seven, less than eight. And I looked at my wife. I said, you know, we got school tomorrow. I go, let's go. Can we go? Because mm-hmm. in my mind, there was no way, no way they were going to score three goals. My youngest was like, she was mad. I was like, honey, we've watched two and a half periods. They haven't scored. I want to see. I, I don't want to go. She was hanging in there, man. She wanted to see a goal. And then, of course, they scored twice before we can get to the damn parking lot practically. Of course, they also gave up six. Well, last season, and Graham was a 56-game schedule. They gave up four empty net goals all year. Mm. They gave up three on Tuesday night. <laughs> on Tuesday night alone, yeah. <laughs> of course, when you pull the goalie with six minutes to go. Yeah, that was a bit of a that was a bit of a gamble there. Um I was like, wait a minute, did they say it was four to two? Oh, five to two. Oh no, six to two. Oh, okay. I feel a little better. I was like, this is crazy, man. I, I mean there was more goals just on the walking out to the parking lot than I had sat through the entire game. Um but we'll see. We'll see how they bounce back with Detroit and they got, they got some tough games coming up, I think. Right. We'll end with two more quick questions, and we'll head yep. out of here since we're yep. already over Let's an hour. Let's do it. So. We're way over. Let's go. Randall asked, does it make more sense to trade Tyler Glass now before a 2023 return or wait to see how he throws in his final arbitration year? Or do you see the Rays extending an unlikely multi-year deal to keep him longer? I don't know. I, I think it's hard to trade a guy coming off Tommy John. Now, maybe Glass now is that guy that somebody would take the flyer on, but you know, to get value, maximum value, I think he's got to get back on the mound. If your if your plan is to trade him, the best thing is for him to get healthy and go out there and start dealing. Well, I and think their you, plan would be to sign him. The question is, will he do that, or is he going to take a chance on himself? Right. I mean, if you you're know. going to sign him hurt, then he's not going to get the the big contract that mm-hmm. he probably would normally yeah. command. Now he's owed six million next year and six million in 2023. So you know you're paying next year. You're paying him six million to sit on the bench. Right. So, you know, if they if they decide they want to recoup some money, maybe they trade him now. But I don't know what value you get for him. You'll get some because he's a heck of a pitcher. Well, you dump his salary right. or most of it. There's that. But, I mean, if you still – I mean, listen, it's not unusual for guys almost – you know, there's two kinds of pitchers, right? Those that have Tommy John, those that haven't had it yet. But if you think – if you, if you really believe in the kid mm-hmm. – um, I mean, he's not Brent Honeywell yet. Well, but the, the, here's the thing is you owe him $12 million. For the next right. two years, he's only going to pitch at most one he's of them. Going to pitch one of them, and then he's yeah. a free agent at the end of that. So, right. So th- that's now. the risk of keeping him. Keeping yeah. him is that you may get nothing for him and only one year for that twelve million. What do you think they do? I think they'd like to resign him to a longer deal. The question is: is is he willing to do that? But then you're likely to pay more than twelve million for the next two years before he even pitches. Well, I mean, you can structure the deal where I mean, because the question, you know. He's in arbitration now, except his deal's not going to go up because he's not pitching next year. So his value doesn't as far as that goes. So it's it, Mark Topkin, I remember, wrote about it after the injury. And, and it's something they're going to have to decide is, you know, it's $12 million for the next two years to get one year out of him. You know, they've done this with guys like Wilson Ramos they signed, and, and he rehabbed some before he came back. And, you know, so there's a cost to it. But do you think you could get more for Tyler now and save the twelve million? Do you think you have a shot to sign him long term? Does he want to sign here long term? I mean, those are all you know. It takes two to sign somebody. Mm-hmm. It's not just the race choice at that point, too. 
or is he going to bank on himself and try to go to free agency in two years? And at that point, if if he wants to go to free agency, then that's where the, the Rays may have a choice now. Do we try to trade him now to get something for him instead of waiting just to get one year out of him? Mm. And, and, and a lot of that's the conversations between you know his agent, Tyler, and the team. We may not know the answers to. Oh, fascinating question. I hope he gets to pitch again. I want to see him. But All right. We'll yeah. end on this. Les asked, he said, going back to 1990, no Florida coach has made it past season five without winning the SEC. Next year is year five for Dan Mullen. And then winning the SEC next year seems like a long shot at this point. Will Mullen still be the coach at Florida in 2023? I'm going to say probably not. Uh, um, listen, Dan Mullen, they play LSU this Saturday, and LSU is not great, but the game is there. And they still got some tough games on the schedule, obviously Georgia. If this team finishes with eight wins, which is possible, instead of ten, I mean, there's a big difference, right? They could end up ten in a New Year's Day Bowl game, or they could win eight and, and go somewhere awful. You win eight again? Then you're you're on the line at that point, in my opinion. If you're Dan Mullen, there's every right to just question whether he's the right guy or not. So, uh, I mean, history being what it is, you put it that way. Unless he were to win an SEC or at least get back to the championship game next year, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say he's not going to be here. Wow! If, I, if you really, well. But tell me I'm wrong. I mean, the guy's got the history, right? Five years. I mean, I mean, they, look, they're they're trying to win chips over there at Florida, rightly or wrongly, whether they 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 have any reason to think they're ever going to beat Alabama or Georgia or anybody else. Um, that's what they believe at at the U University of Florida. So, if you keep winning eight nine games a year and not get into the championship game, you're not going to stick around there. I don't think. Gator fans, man, are serious now. Mm-hmm. They got buyout money, too. They got lots of buyout money. That is not a problem for them. That's the most That's the most important thing when it comes to college coaching. Absolutely. Buyout money and the money to hire the new coach and coaching staff. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where, you know, Florida State got into trouble with Taggart, and they were able to come up with the money, but, you, you know, I don't think that, you know, not that they want to get rid of Norvell. Uh, some probably do, but. You know, it would be tough for them, too, because of the financial situation. And I think he's going to be okay. I think so. I mean, That was you, a big win in North Yeah, you Carolina. see things are pointing up. I mean, it's hard to point down from where they were. But you can see that the team hasn't folded after losing to Jacksonville State. Yeah, they've got some pieces, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've got some pieces. And they're getting, they're getting better. I mean, they've got a long way to go. Not going to compete for the ACC anytime soon, but but they can year. identify. Here's here's what we can build around. You yes. know, they're starting to get to this point where they're like, okay, we can do this. Okay, the quarterback can do that. Okay, the running back can do this. Like they they're starting to figure out a formula where they could actually win games. So, you know, still some. Look, I I I say I'm not a huge Dan Mullen guy. I just I don't know, man. We'll see. He better win ten this year, though. The question is always not can Dan Mullen win 10, it's can he win 12. And are you okay if he doesn't? I don't think Florida fan is. I think Florida fan wants to win the SEC, man. Especially if Georgia does, right? What if Kirby Smart does Alabama and wins it all? 
What if they win a national championship at Georgia? Do you think that's going to get Florida's goat just a little bit? Mm-hmm. Like a lot, right? Like you're recruiting right there on the border between Florida and Georgia, and everybody now is going to Georgia or Alabama. Now you got another one that's invading your backyard, taking players. That's going to be hard to watch. If Georgia wins the SEC or the national championship, that's that's going to put even more pressure on Dan, I think. It's a hell of a rivalry. So, Great questions, great week of uh, stories, obviously, and conversation, and uh, the Rays flaming out, and the Lightning not showing up, and now we got the Bucks on Thursday night football. So, And the Lightning get a chance to redeem themselves tonight as well. They're in Detroit. That, that's right. Yeah, got to bounce back against a not great but improving Detroit team in Stevie Eiserman's club. So uh, see if they show up for that one. But we'll be uh, we'll be talking to you after the game very late, very early in the morning uh, on Thursday Night Football. Enjoy it. Just wake me up when you're ready. I will, as usual. Well, and then I'll set the alarm for 45 minutes so I can get up and fly home. It's one of those days, folks, 20 hours. We do it all for you. So for Steve Versnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Times. Have a great day, everybody.